The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Our New Testament reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. And Sadducees came to him, Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is, not, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is God's word. In all of Holy Week, which I talk with the firefighters, we kind of call it the Super Bowl of the church. In all of Holy Week, the one day that probably gets the least amount of press is Saturday. The day between a cross and a resurrection. As I was reflecting with a friend recently about the state of my own soul lately, I said, I feel like Saturdays where I've been living. One of my favorite songwriters wrote it better than I could. He said this, I'm stuck in the tomb and you're not moving the stone. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I believe he conquered not only sin from the cross, but death from the tomb. I believe that. But functionally, practically, I don't live as if the resurrection is true. I live drinking the Kool-Aid of Joel Olstein's best-selling book, which says this, your best life now. Maybe I'm not alone. How many of you said today, he is risen indeed, but that phrase has no bearing on your day-to-day operations. You're living to just get through the day so you can prop your feet up with Fortnite or Moon Knight. You're living just for the weekend, for a hookup or a head up to the cottage to get away from it all. You're living just for the summer to come so you can see the sun again and go to the lake house. You're living for just retirement age so you can invite your grandkids down to the Florida beach to watch the sunset. It's what the world would want you to believe. Your best life is now. 
But friends, look at our world. If this is our best life now, then we have to seriously adjust our expectations of how we measure best. I can't seem to go a day without pouncing with anger at one of my kids. I can't seem to lift up my phone without reading about yet again another celebrity abuse scandal or mass shooting or politically violent grab for power. And I can't seem to stay off my phone. I I can't seem to shake a feeling of loneliness. And as I sat with one of my best friends and told him that this week, He then responds to tell me, hey, Chad, I got some bad news. I might not be long for this world. Best life now, Joel? Really? (laughs) No, no, this is not our best life now. People, even sad Christians like me who live as if this is their best life now are making two flawed mistakes. One, we are not reading with the grain of scripture. And two, we are seriously downgrading the power of God. Today in Mark's gospel, we have our first and only encounter with the Sadducees. Sad, you see, because they are us. They're surrectionists. Okay? They believe you're born and you die. Your best life is now. There's no more later. There's no resurrection. There's no resurrection. And Jesus has something to say to them and to us on this resurrection morning. And it's this. Good news, friends. Good news. Your best life, it's not now. Rejoice in a God who will make all things new. Why? Because Jesus Christ's resurrection is true. Rejoice in a God who will make all things new. Because Jesus Christ's resurrection is true. Today I want to ask the question, how does the truth of Jesus' resurrection make all things new for us? It's in how Jesus breathes this resurrection life into us. There's three ways this morning I want to talk about how Jesus breathes resurrection life to us. First, he breathes resurrection life to our dead imaginations. Secondly, he breathes resurrection life to any of our human expectations. And finally, he breathes resurrection life to God and man's relations. First, Jesus breathes life, resurrection life to our dead imaginations. You'll see this in verses 18 to 24. The Sadducees, they come to prove Jesus wrong. And why do the Sadducees want to set up Jesus for failure? Because you see it, they don't believe in a resurrection and they ask him a riddle about resurrection. Why do they want to set him up for failure? Because they are living the Joel Olstein life. They cannot imagine a life better than the one they have right now. The Sadducees were powerful and wealthy individuals. They had it made. They had a lot of power. They were in with the Romans. They were making a boatload of money. And they believed that God had blessed them for their faithfulness to the law with these riches and this status in the here and now. They had absolutely no imagination for a better life because this was a pretty good life. 
And people, they believed, people who believed in resurrection are risky to the Sadducees. Because what do resurrectionists do? Resurrectionists become insurrectionists. They die for things. And the Sadducees didn't want anyone, including Jesus, who promised this new kingdom to come. They didn't want anyone overthrowing their comfy perch. The Sadducees also had no room for imagination. They were pragmatists. In fact, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, was enough for them. None of this colorful prophet language about dead bones rising or son of man coming in glory. No, throw those out. None of this song and dance, pomp and circumstance of the Psalms. Throw it out. None of this confusing Job suffering and all his vanity, wisdom, literature, nonsense. Just give me the meat and potatoes. That's the Sadducees. They were like the King James only version people. No imagination for angels. They didn't believe in demons. And they didn't believe in a life beyond what was right in front of your face. Just do what's right and your life will go right. And they wanted to prove Jesus wrong by giving him a riddle that used God's law to make resurrection look absolutely ridiculous. Seven brothers for one bride. Who's she married to in the resurrection, Jesus? We got him now. Jesus says to them, it's not because of this riddle that you are so far off. In the Greek, he actually kind of says, it's more like him saying, what planet are you living on? Where you're wrong, Jesus says, is in not knowing the scriptures and the power of God. Wow. Jesus calls the experts of the law ignoramuses. Because what have they done to Scripture? They have made it a textbook. Those of you who have gone to school, how imaginative are textbooks? And what have they done to God? They've made Him weak, saying resurrection is way beyond what's possible for Him. They cannot imagine anything than what their eyes can see. I remember when I was looking at seminaries, one of the things I was most concerned about, because I saw it happen, was that my relationship with God would become sterile and factual in the higher learning of theology and God, rather than joy-filled and alive. And I went to one seminary, and I was being toured around, and I asked the guy who was walking me around this question. So tell me, how does this place prevent the Bible from becoming a textbook? Because I don't want to see that happen. And he looked at me blankly and he said, it just goes with the territory. I didn't attend that seminary. (laughs) I went to one that promised your relationship with Christ would be deeper and richer when you came out than when you came in. Do you take the time to allow the fact That God brought a dead man back to life to never die again. Does that fact impact your imagination of what is possible with God? Maybe you have been so bogged down with the bleakness of headlines and post-COVID fatigue. And what is that you're no longer thinking what can be? I want to encourage you to do something 
Read scripture as if it were the first time you were hearing these things. God speaking, let there be light and there's light. God making men from dust and then women from ribs, burning bushes that never burn up, wild seas that part with God's breath, impenetrable walls that fall by a walk around it and a trumpet blast. Where are you being way too pragmatic about your life? Where are you giving God a riddle? You know what? He's never going to be able to solve this one. Instead, ask him to roll away the stone to make what seems impossible to you possible with him. I want to be clear. I'm not talking about Joel Olstein's best life now. See it and God can make it happen. Name it and claim it. I'm talking about bringing his resurrected life to breathe on your monotony. On your, this is how it's always going to be. On your, they're never going to change. Or God could not possibly love or save someone like me. Friends, the word is not a textbook. It's a miracle. And God's power is not limited. Death isn't even a match for him. Ask him to breathe resurrection life to your dead imaginations of what is possible with God. Second, Jesus breathes resurrection life to human expectations. What Jesus does with these Sadducees in two short sentences proves generations of Sadducees wrong and resurrection right. And the first you see in verse 25 as he challenges human expectation. He answers their riddle by giving them a glimpse of resurrection life and saying, in essence, you're making resurrection into your own image. He says, resurrection people will not be married but will have the same marital status as angels. Part of the reason why we have marriage here on earth is what? To procreate, to multiply and expand. But in eternal life, in the new heaven and the new earth, there's no need for multiplication. In fact, good news, the single folks in our midst today are a more accurate view of resurrection life than the married folks here today. Do we look at single folks like that? We need to. That's what Jesus is saying. But what do we do? We put human expectation on resurrected life. Even the false notion that you see on tombstones of children, and I want to be respectful here, but you see these tombstones that say, God needed another little angel. That's false. That's not what Jesus is saying here. We're putting our expectations on what heaven looks like. We're not going to be angels. It's not what Jesus is saying. But in our fallenness, again, we make eternal life into our own image. The view that I often have, and my kids and I talk about it, like resurrection life is going to be boring because it's going to be eternal. It's going to be so long. But resurrection life is going to be so different from anything your human expectations can put on it. It will be completely other than your expectations. It's like this. It's like the contrast between a caterpillar and a butterfly. 
What was and what is are the same creature, aren't they? They're just completely transformed, completely different. When you saw a caterpillar, would you think that thing's going to turn golden and fly around? Not in your life you would think that. But that's what Jesus is saying. Quit putting your expectations of what resurrection looks like on God. Strange thing happens. I'll just, for those of you younger than me, which is a lot of you, strange thing happens when you reach middle age. I can start to predict things that are going to happen with more accuracy. And it's not because I'm a clairvoyant. It's because I've got more years and inventory of patterns of things that have happened over the course of my life and experiences I've had. I just learned recently about someone I knew who renounced his faith. And I wasn't surprised. I had seen patterns of pride in behavior that led me to a specific conclusion. I'm not sure this person knows Jesus. And sure enough, I wasn't surprised. He left Jesus. But this week, honestly, as I was sitting in some tears of some patterned pain and some problem people, I got a text that was completely unexpected. It was a message from someone who the week prior had made the decision to say, I'm done with the church and I'm done with God's people. And the message that I read was filled with repentance and humility. And I'm sorry, I was wrong. I did not expect that. Christ breathed his resurrection into my limited human expectations. This person's changed. How might you ask God to work this in you as well? Changing your expectations. I want you to think about what you love. What's the best thing in your life right now? And expect how in resurrected life, in the new creation... God will take what's good and make it infinitely better. Take the aches and pains of middle age or cancer treatments and use it not as an expectation that you're going to be six feet under in less than 30 years. No, instead, use it as a pointer to a place and a hope where there will be no need for the temporary pain relief of ibuprofen or alcohol or opioids or Hulu or Hot Pockets. Where you will run and never grow weary, where you will walk and you will not faint. And all of your slanted expectations of people that are going to hurt you or fathers that are going to distance themselves from you or children that are going to reject you, all of those expectations, allow God to breathe resurrection life into those expectations. He promises to make straight our paths. Promises to prepare a place where Lambeau's sideline promise of end racism will happen, but it won't be here. Promises that Johnson and Johnson makes of no more tears will not be here, but it will be there and it will be really real. Where children adore their father and where their father constantly pours love on his kids. Resurrection life 
blows out of the water all human expectations. Lastly, Christ breathes resurrection life in our dead imaginations into our human expectations, and finally, and most importantly, into God and man's relations. The Sadducees limited God's power by believing God was really only relevant to them until they died. But you have to ask the question, that's what Jesus asked. What hope is there in a God who relates to his people only when they're living? Jesus points them to the burning bush, to Exodus 3. It's a book of the Bible they believed, so he's using their own words, and he quotes to them God's self-identifying name, I am. God of the is, not the was, not the will be, God of the is. And he says, he is the God of Abraham, who at Moses' day was dead. He is the God of Isaac, at Moses' day was dead. He's the God of Jacob, Moses' day was dead. He launches a riddle right back at him. How in the world can God be I am to dead people if resurrection is not true or real? He says again to them, you are from another planet if you believe God is God of the dead. The promise of resurrection is embedded in that promise. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that promise is made good when the women who are used to tending to dead bodies in graveyards hear an angel speak outside the tomb, asking, why are you seeking the living among the dead? Without Jesus, relationship between God and man, it would indeed be dead. Man, we are dead in our sins. God is eternally alive in his holiness and perfection. But Jesus points the sad Sadducees to the burning bush where Moses, their lawgiver, is standing in the presence of God and he lives. And God says to him, take off your sandals for the ground you're standing upon is holy What is that ground that Moses is standing upon? It is the solid rock of a resurrected Christ. Christ who was the bush that burned but was not consumed by the burning. The son that was put to death for sin but was not left lying in the grave. Jesus is our holy ground standing between God and sinful men. His death, as we remembered on Good Friday, was our death. But his first (gasps) gasp of resurrected life is ours to breathe. You see the front of your worship guide. You see that image of hands going up under the water to take their first (gasps) breath of resurrected life. Every dead person, Scripture says, will be raised to life. Not just those who have faith in Jesus, but every single human being who ever lived will be brought back to life. Some to a life beyond our wildest imaginations. Some to a life worse than our worst nightmares. The difference is what our feet are placed upon. The difference is the shoes we do wear or the shoes we don't wear. Just close with this image that's found in both Old Testament passages that were in Mark 12. The widowed wife in the burning bush. 
in both of these accounts is curiously, and as I, I know I'm geeky, I like to study this, I want to look at these passages, but curiously what's found a common denominator in both those passages is sandals. thought that was interesting. Sandals are all about, in the Old Testament, belonging and possession. A sandal would be handed to someone to complete a transaction of purchase. You saw this, if you remember when we studied the book of Ruth, when Boaz redeemed Ruth, he was given a sandal from the one who by law had rights to her. And the law in Deuteronomy says that if a brother of a man who died makes the choice to refuse to marry the widowed woman, he will become the recipient of shame because he refused to carry on God's name and legacy. Here's what happens. This is what Deuteronomy says. The widowed wife, she goes up to the man in the presence of the church leaders and she pulls the sandal off of the man's foot and spits in his face. The ripping off of a sandal was a sign of shame and disowning. The one who lived for himself would be marked with shame by his selfishness. Anyone who chooses to live for themselves, who refuses to give up their own rights to themselves, who refuses to live in Jesus' resurrected name, will face resurrection with the shame and the rejection of God. But for those who choose to live to Christ, who had not only his sandal pulled off of him, but all of his clothes taken off of him, taking on the shame of our sin onto him, and who said, I will die to myself so that they can live and there can be a legacy formed through me. Those who choose to live to Christ, we have the privilege, the humble privilege of standing upon the holy ground of a world made new. Christ married us. We wear his sandals. We wear his clothing. We are washed white with his righteousness. There is a remade world where there will be no more death, where there will be no more night, where there will only be light, where all good things will be made best. Jesus' death and resurrection breathes eternal life into our once dead bodies. I want to encourage you, let him breathe that life into your imagination that your best life is not now, it's coming Let him breathe life into your expectations that what is will far surpass or actually far be demoted from what's to come. And let him breathe life so that in the new heavens and the new earth, friends, it's not you who live. It's not you who's breathing. But it's Christ who is living and resurrected within you. He is risen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your son and for the work that he's done for us. The resurrection life that we can breathe, that we can stand alive, that we can stand forgiven, that we can stand free. We pray, Father, that you would breathe new life into all of our imaginations, expectations, and remind us that when we put our faith, our trust, our hope, our everything in Christ, 
standing upon his holy ground, we can face God and live. All God's people said, amen.